Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you came back. Hey, how's it going? How's your summer been? Hope you've been uh, sitting back and relaxing, rejuvenating, uh, getting recharged, getting some reading done, perhaps, watching uh, some stuff on the good old Netflix or whatever your favorite streaming location would be. Anyway, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for tuning in. We've got Ken Bauer on this episode, and uh, it's a good one. One of my favorite pieces of this was the ungrading, and because uh, I've been flirting around with the idea of ungrading for a little while, and um, we talk about that uh, quite a bit here in the episode, and I think you'll find that to be quite informative and uh, useful. Also talk about uh, teaching in a foreign country. He's been down in uh, Mexico for about 25 years. So that's an interesting gig and uh, not a bad one if I can imagine that. We talk about a lot of great stuff. You're going to enjoy this one. I hope you've enjoyed them so far in this uh, great summer that we've been having. Speaking of that, the recording of this episode took place before the summer started. So some of the time references in this episode may seem a little, well... A little late, a little early, a little out of sync, but that's okay. Hey, one thing that Ken has taught me is uh, don't be afraid of uh, little mistakes and little idiosyncrasies in the stuff that you create because it shows that you're human. So thanks for that, Ken. I appreciate that. Anyway, here's episode 31. Hope you enjoy. Take care. Yep. Two, one. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode thirty-one, and I have the famous Ken Bauer on the line with me. Ken, how you doing? I'm doing really well, Tim. Thanks. Um, it's uh, just submitted grades this morning, so the oh. semester is officially over, and uh, my week looks nice and open. Nice. You gonna do a little grades dance? I know I always do a little grades dance. I did. I did do that, and um, mostly I, I'm gonna like book some time out this week <laughs> what's the what was it they say go get a little body work done maybe have a latte you know yeah yeah pretty much <laughs> go around the corner to my kitchen and make myself a coffee yeah, and then come back to the desktop here yeah go on a road trip to my garage there you go exactly nice nice well ken how, for some of us who may not know who you are how about you give us a little background on you on who you are and what you do so um, I'm an associate professor in computing science here at the Tecnológico de Monterrey uh, in Mexico. So the Tecnológico de Monterrey is the largest private institution in Latin America. We have about 90-something thousand students across 26 campuses, about 9,000 faculty last time I got a count of that. And I'm at the Guadalajara campus, which is uh, probably our second largest campus, the Monterrey one which is part of our name, is, is the main campus in Monterey, Nuevo León. And I've been here for uh, 25 years. Uh, Canadian, originally from Victoria. I, I moved down here 25 years ago. I've, I made trips back to work in software engineering uh, in the late 90s and then uh, to pursue a PhD about 15 years ago. I went to the University of Alberta in Edmonton, so I, I know winter weather because as a Victoria boy, I don't know winter weather. And, uh, and I love it here. I came for a while. Um, 
I loved my first two years here as a sessional professor. I went to work in the software industry and then I got pulled back um, because my students invited me to be what we call the uh, godfather of the generation, which is like a graduating class invites a teacher to be their like godparent for their graduating class. And, and they did that in 1998, the May class, and then they did it again in 1998, in the December class. And when I was here for that May one, the director of the campus says, we, we really want you to come back. And so I mulled that over for a few months and, and I decided that um, I didn't mind taking about a 90% pay cut for my software engineering job oh, yeah. to come and teach in Mexico. <laughs> um, and, and it was a life decision and I love teaching and that's why I'm here. And that's yeah. kind of the, the short story version. Wow. I got so many questions about that. <laughs> Did I trigger some things so I can oh. get some questions going? Good. Yeah, totally. Like, okay. So first of all, like, how did you find out about the opportunity to teach down in Mexico? So uh, I got married to a Mexican that I met in grad school when I was in Seattle at the University of Washington. Okay. And um, so uh, she had to move back here because she was on a scholarship. And I applied for jobs all over the place at Hilo Packard and some other companies in software. And um, we knew someone who knew someone. And I came and visited the campus here. And I wanted to teach computer science. And there wasn't any space. And then a week before classes were starting in August, uh, 25 years ago now, 1995, uh, they called me and said, hey, can you teach high school math? Oh, I guess so. I, I was pretty good in math in high school. And uh, yeah, so I won math competitions in Canada. And so I'm sure I can do that. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You won math competitions in Canada? Yeah, yeah like the Fermat, Pascal and weird things like in the 1980s. So yeah, so this is a, a weird stuff comes out during conversations. But I liked it. So I taught high school and uh, taught high school for a semester. And, and, and it was fun. It was a full load. Yeah. Um, I was like, I guess, grade 10 algebra. Okay. And I did one semester of high school and then things opened up and I taught some, um, some university level classes, computer science, a mix of computer science and math for my first semester in university level. Um, in Mexico, we usually have a high school that's attached to our universities. Oh, okay. Okay. So there's grade 10, 11, 12 is high school and almost other public and private it's generally there's a high school associated with the university. And in our case, it was on the actual same physical campus. And at that time we were really small and it was like mixed in the buildings. Now they're like across the parking lot. Um, so I, I shifted to university and, and loved it so much. I tended to be what we called the um, bombero or the firefighter of the department. If, if a teacher left or for whatever reason, they would invite me to take over their class. So I taught a lot of classes kind of in the emergency mode. And that first semester teaching undergraduate, I taught eight distinct courses. So eight preps um, in one semester for math and for computer science. So that, that was my baptism to teaching in university. And then it's all been easy since then. It's a, <laughs> baptism by fire. Tim. I mean, yeah. it was trivial. Oh, wow. If you're 26, you, you only need two hours of sleep a day, right? Exactly. <laughs> Oh, mercy. And then they're going to say, Hey, we got this Canadian guy here. Let's put him through some, let's put him through some hoops. Let's see what he can yeah. do. It was, it was a fun time. And so, um, that was my first couple of years here. Then I went back to Canada, worked in software engineering. They hauled me back and, and I've, I love teaching. So yeah. that's, that's why I'm keep doing this here. Wow. I've often thought about myself, like just teaching abroad, but I mean, obviously now that's going to look so much different. Right. But mm -hmm. 
because I know a few people that one, one person teaches in Italy and another person goes, another person goes to Australia and teach. I'm like, like, how do you, how do you even get a gig like that? Or how do you even come across or sniff you, a gig? You just like fall that? into it. I mean, everyone always asks, how did you, how did you get here as a foreigner or an expat patriot or an expat, yeah. or I like to call, I'm a migrant worker. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, it's almost always patterns of you, you met someone in grad school, you met somewhere and you got married and you moved and like it was in my case. Um, and then, we're not married anymore. That was a long story, but I'm now happily married with three children, with my wonderful wife and, and three kids. But um, it's usually that, or you went to grad school somewhere, you liked it, you stayed. I mean, it's, it's a different experience, Tim. And I miss, I miss Canada. Um, I'm a Canadian, but my memories of Canada are like 1993 pre. Uh, aside from the four years I spent in Edmonton and and a year or so in software engineering in the late nineties in Canada. But my view of Canada is a different Canada. Although I, you know, I listen to my CBC in the morning and the evening. Um, I, I have this identity thing where I'm not Mexican because even though I've lived here for 25 years and I'm, I'm Canadian, but I'm, 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 I'm in this in between all the time. And, and a lot of um, foreigners teaching in different countries. So it's, it's kind of our reality. So does that ever lead to some loneliness and like not feeling quite in the- Sometimes maybe I'm, I'm also very introverted and I'm used to spending a lot of times in my own head and reaching out to a lot of the colleagues like we do online. So I, I don't have that loneliness because I have an online community that's really important to me. Um, but in many aspects, I don't necessarily have really close friends here that I reach out to so much. I mean, I've, I've had over the past and I, I do more and I'm not sure if that's just cause I'm older and it would be the same if I was still in Canada and I was just getting older and going into my cocoon in my computer area, or if it's uh, it's harder for me to identify with people from a, a different background. We don't share the same, you know, cartoons we watched as a kid and all right. of that kind of cultural background or, or hockey. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. people don't get my, my fascination with hockey here um, as much. <laughs> There's a few. I've, I've got some colleagues who actually played hockey in Mexico, Okay. Um, even though I never actually played. Oh, yeah. oh mercy. So are you, are you a football fan? Do you like the, the, uh, the soccer? I loved, yeah. I loved playing soccer. I played lots as a, as a teenager growing up in Canada, and I love playing the game, but I hate watching it. I find it incredibly boring. And I, and I always joke, if they didn't serve alcohol and food at the stadium, nobody would go to the football. Nobody would go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I kind of like watching it on TV and, and, and in person. I've always enjoyed watching sports better in person than on the right. TV. Um, yep. Although you don't have the luxuries of home and all that, obviously. Right. But there's just something about the ambiance, the, the, the atmosphere. Oh yeah. The crowd is great. Yeah. And I haven't been to to an NFL game yet, and I, I really want to get to one. But um, like I've been to the CFL, I've seen the MLB, I've been to NBA, I've been to MLS, nice. and all that stuff, right? But uh, my favorite of all of them actually is MLS. It's just the way the crowd gets into it back and forth, mm-hmm. especially if it's Vancouver versus yeah. Seattle, right? Or even Vancouver and Portland. Like it's just it's amazing. Yeah. And then um, my so son, shout out to Clint Lalonde, who's a big that's right, shout out fan. To, Clint Lalonde. He's actually, um, well, I, I won't say, I'll tell you offline, but, uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a big soccer fan for sure. But, um, yeah, my son actually went and played in Europe for, um, I'll say a couple months 
wasn't, it wasn't like a big long career. Um, and, uh, yeah, he came back. Like it was, he was like, you know, it's a completely different culture. And, and like, they got like seven, eight tiers and they're, they're paid down to like tier four, tier five, even. And he was playing against tier six, tier five. He even played against one tier four and they did okay. Like they got, they got killed sometimes and they, they won, I think a couple games and they, they played a bunch, but he's like, man, it's so different. Like, oh, it's different. I remember playing in Victoria, BC and in, in, in our youth soccer and some, you know, uh, I remember uh, some friends came, they moved to Canada in the eighties after the Mexico, big Mexico city earthquake. And they were like, yeah, we sucked as players in Mexico, but we're like <laughs> the stars here. It's awesome. That's right. That's right. Yeah. My son's had Competition a few levels uh, different. Oh, it's way different. Right. Like my son has had a few, um, uh, kids from Mexico come on his team when he was playing here. Um, cause they, they, they would, they would send their kids up to do some schooling. And then uh, at an exchange program, I, I'm searching for the term. And then he had actually had a couple of guys from Germany come on his team. And it was the same thing. Like, it was just like, it's not even like oh, they're yeah. trying. Like everyone else is running, they're jogging, oh. right? And it's, they're just it's effortless it's, movement. Oh, it's, you can tell right away. Okay. That guy's a, yeah, he's actually better than he's letting on. Right. And right. Uh, it's like that, that hockey IQ we talk about. There's, oh, there's yeah. obviously a soccer IQ the, and oh, I didn't totally. have it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't play hockey. My dad played for the Regina Pats long time ago. And mm -hmm. uh, I kept trying to bug my dad, get me into hockey, get me into hockey, get me into hockey. And he's like, I don't want to get up at four to take you to a stupid no. rink. I'm, I'm the one who said, no, I don't like this getting up at 5 a.m., mom. Yeah. And I think I made it through two practices. My older brother played. Yeah. Um, and luckily, there was a, another Kenny that lived down the street from us. So my equipment with the Kenny on top of the helmet and everything yeah. got, it got sent off to Kenny Ballantyne. So, uh, yeah, I didn't last more than a couple practices in, in those early morning hockey. <laughs> my mom was pretty happy about it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. My dad had, he didn't want anything to do with it. He's like, you're not going to that. And, and he was, yeah. and he just went on like the equipment and ice time and, Oh yeah, it's crazy. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I got played into soccer, soccer and baseball instead. Yeah. I didn't play baseball. I played soccer. I was a goalkeeper for a long time. Nice. That's what my, and that's what my son played. He played keeper for nice. his whole career. So. Oh, wow. That's cool. So when you're teaching down in Mexico, like, are you teaching in English or are you teaching in, in, um, an, another language? Spanish. Yes. Um, so yes. Uh, when I first moved here, my Spanish sucked. Um, my, my Spanish sucks less now, but, um, yeah, um, part of the reason they have me there is because they, one, they want international students to give or teachers to have a different perspective to give our students that perspective of different cultures and different, um, languages. So I was hired specifically to teach in English because our students have to graduate with a certain level in uh, the TOEFL exam, a teaching um, TOEFL exam. Uh, what is the name of the exam? It's stuck on me. But it's the English language exam that they have to take an exam and get a certain score in order to graduate. So they want teachers like us to teach in English. But obviously, when I would teach in first-year classes, it became tricky because um, – Although we're a private institution, there's, there's good scholarships and actually there's full scholarships, but the students studying engineering and computing tended to be on the lower level of the socioeconomic spectrum of our students in our, in our campus. And so they might not be the ones who studied uh, private English classes before they came. So I would get a lot of students with low English. And so as I was able to learn more Spanish, I definitely mix more Spanish in the classroom or identify the ones that have the deer in the headlights. Like they have no freaking idea what this 
Canadian saying. Um, and so I, I've learned to switch in between. But um, we put an emphasis on, on our students having some English inside their programs. Right, right. And so um, th- having a high school beside your university, that, that's a great little feeder system to, to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but because it's private, do they, do they receive any funding from the government? Like, like in Canada? No, or we're, we're fully, fully privately funded. The Tech de Monterey is a an, um, unique institution. We were actually created by a presidential decree in 1943. And we're kind of like the MIT of Mexico. It's the Monterey Institute of Technology. It's like a polytechnic. But it was created by a bunch of um, um, business people in Monterey, uh, in the engineering, especially area. And they founded the institution in 1943. It was created by presidential decree. So we're a nonprofit. We're not allowed to generate a profit. Um, but we have a different kind of status than other private institutions in Mexico um, and different regulations. But yeah, we're nonprofit and pretty well, mostly tuition driven although we have other sources of income to help, um, right. help keep us going. Right. So with, with the, I mean, I'm sure you know what the crisis has been doing to higher ed in the States yes. and even in Canada, is that you guys are facing the same deal? Down yeah. There? It's just a different dynamics of how um, the budget looks. And so um, one thing we had recently, we have this um, almost every Friday, although it's becoming every second Friday now, since we announced our, uh, move into online back on March 12th. Uh, we've been getting a message from the, the head of the institution every week. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, they, they brought out to the light, you know, financial issues, right? So saying that, you know, this is what's going to happen. Um, I don't want to talk about details, but certain people will be able to get raises uh, and, and some of you won't. And some of us are taking cuts. Um, and so um, they, they laid it out on, on the table. Um, that this is our financial status and uh, we're just, you know, pitching pennies where we can. Uh, I, I pitched for us to have OLC Innovate access for the faculty on our campus because Keegan told me that about this great deal of pay one and all the faculty can come. Um, and it's an awesome deal and I really wanted my colleagues to join us. But it was like, no, we, we right now we're in lockdown, can't spend pretty much anything mode that's not outside of what's already planned. So I think we're going to be fine. Our tuition numbers look good from what I saw, or not to like in, in enrollment numbers. Um, so I think we're going to be okay, but we're still like a lot of people. We just don't know what's going to happen in August. We start our next semester in August. So are you so, guys going fully online in August or are you still in limbo? We're, we're, we've been defined as hybrid. Um, and we, we received a message about a month ago. Um, it was mainly just to say that we are starting on time. There was rumors of, whoa, maybe we'll start later to try to wait it out. Um, but the main message is we're going to start on time and that uh, there will be some form of hybrid. But it also depends which campus, because we have the 26 campuses across the country in different cities in different states are having different situations with what's going on with the pandemic than others. Um, I anticipate personally, um, I'm just guessing that I'll probably be right where I am giving my classes until the end of the year. Cause I think it'll be, some will be on campus. Some will not be on campus. And those of us that the way I teach, I don't, I don't need my classroom. Um, I'm actually more comfortable here in front of my own class for the teaching tools. I, I miss seeing my students and being with my students, 
but the way I teach works fine the way I'm doing it now. Okay. Is, is education a uh, countrywide affair or is it kind of like in Canada where it's, it's rele- relegated to provinces and does Mexico, forgive me for my ignorance, but does Mexico have provinces or do they have states within the So country? we have states. Um, and so there is a national uh, uh, education institution in the government so that decisions are made nationally, but also locally in the uh, state level. So the, the national government announced that all schools like K, K-12 or actually K-9 um, were shutting down uh, on a certain date. I guess it was probably about the 23rd of March. And uh, the Jalisco state government where I am said, no, 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 we're doing it earlier. And they made the call and pulled the plug earlier. Um, so they, they got out ahead of it. I don't want to get into the politics of whether that was a good decision or not. Um, I don't know it enough. I'll point to my colleagues who do. But so there's a mix. There's definitely a mix. Our institution, the Tecnomontere, was the first, I think, company, institution, school in the entire country who, who shut things down early. And a colleague of mine, um, Cynthia, Cynthia, she published, uh, there was this report that was created by Aros Burkat and others. There was like a report from 80-something countries of what happened in higher education uh, reacting to uh, COVID-19 just recently published, I shared it on Twitter and some other places, but she wrote a wonderful like three page piece of what happened in Mexico. Um, RS invited me to do it. And I said, this is not my area. I will point you to the right <laughs> expert. And she did a wonderful job. My job was only connecting uh, RS with the right person in Mexico to write that article. <laughs> I learned a lot reading it. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, that's on my queue too. I, I think I saved that tweet that you sent out. So I read the one from Canada and I read the one from Mexico, but it's a, it's a 115 page document. It's massive. Um, I'm, I'm happy. Aris gave me a little shout out at the bottom and Martin Weller and some other people who uh, connected um, him with the right people in the countries. Mahabali was also one of the authors on that report. Cool. So as we're entering into our third month in what I call this new landscape, I don't call it a new normal anymore. I just call it a new landscape. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I was getting really tired. Um, one thing I've been doing is I've been publishing my blog daily um, since sometime in April. Uh, I think it was number 62 I published yesterday. Um, but I'm, I'm writing a daily report, which was a, um, which was a prompt from, from a colleague, uh, Ben Birdmuller, who wrote an idea of uh, writing about life on the ground during COVID-19. And so I took his prompt and he actually had a list of questions to ask ourselves each day. There's four common ones and then uh, some extending questions. I'm actually going to bring that up so I can find it while we're talking. So I started writing that and I thought, well, this is kind of an interesting thing to start with. Um, and it prompted me to, you know, start blogging more because I hadn't been. And so the core questions are, what did you do today? Just the facts. What did you enjoy? Uh, the third one is what did you find difficult? The fourth thing is what has changed? Um, and then it goes into some longer ones to come back, extended ones. I usually only touch those four ones. I touch them every day. Um, but I found myself growing really tired. Um, running out of energy. I like to start early in the morning, like five. And then it, midday, I'm, I'm kind of done. I, I can't I have no energy. And a lot, I think a lot of colleagues have been saying this. I run this thing called Edu Coffee, which is every day at 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. It's kind of a, just a break. And um, I started that March 25th. 
So it's been a while. And, and part of that has been just, you know, kind of therapy session, I guess, but more just hanging out, sharing. And a lot of us, you know, past that first month where it was all kind of new and exciting and we're dealing with it in panic goggy mode, we're feeling exhausted. Um, I need a break. I should probably take some vacations this summer, but I'm kind of like, well, why bother? I'm just going to be doing the same thing anyway. I could defer them to January, but I should probably book a few days off. Um, our institution actually told us if you need a day off, talk to your, talk to your leader or your department chair and, and arrange it. And that won't even count on your time off. So they've been really supportive that way. They actually just gave us Monday off because Sunday's Father's Day. And uh, they said, no, take Monday off. Uh, all of you that are fathers. No, well, they said all of you that are fathers. Oh, so, so I get to take Monday off. I'll be here in my house with my yeah. kids. Yeah. But, uh, but they've been really good about it, but I'm tired. I'm kind of, kind of burned, but good. I'm, I'm happy. I'm healthy. And the family's healthy. That's what's the most important, but it's been exhausting. And it's, it's been listening to colleagues and listening to students. I have my students write I always have them write reflective pieces at the end of the semester. But this one, I told them the prompt was um, translating from Spanish, um, being a student during COVID-19. And so I got some really nice reflective blog or blog posts or essays, or some of them wrote some songs, which was really freaking cool. Oh, wow. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, some of them, one had this post where it was a video, but it was just a picture of the rain outside while he was talking over it. It was really well produced. Um, some really, you know, heartbreaking, uh, posts actually, the subtitle of my blog post from yesterday, about the day before was, uh, tears because it was, it was gut wrenching reading about my students' experiences during this. Hit me. And none of them that is like, you know, real bad crisis mode. I mean, then not that they told me. But it, it's, it's hard for them. It's really hard. It's a different world um, that they're living in now than they were back in February or January. Yeah, I've got, uh, I teach a couple night schools here, kind of doing the same thing, asking for more reflection, like in the discussion questions. It's not just about, hey, this is the chapter. What do you think? It's more along the lines of, so like, how are you doing? So in reading this, how is this going to affect what you're doing during COVID. And, and then, so I'm, I'm asking my class, like how many of you are taking more than one course right now? And oh, 80, 90% of them are taking more than one course. And it's like, how many of you are working right now? And, you know, surprisingly, a lot of them are still working, but I'm like, okay, so surprisingly a lot are still working because they haven't lost their job to COVID, but they're working on top of three or four classes a week. And then I'm like, so, and then you got family at home and all this other stuff. And, oh, it's just, and, yeah. So I, I yeah. And, and I, I, I hear you. Like it's, you just, you read, you read and you read them and read them and you're like, Oh man, like, Oh, <laughs> you know, they're, you think they're 25 years old. They got, ah, oh, yeah. It's just. And then, yeah. and then, and then, I mean, obviously there's a nice thing. I mean, there's the thanks, the, the thank you for caring about us. Thank you for saying, how are you at the beginning of our sessions? Um, the little tips I have for doing online Zoom sessions is 
I don't put the recording on at the start. We have our kind of pre-show where it's like, okay, we're not going to be recorded and, and let's just relax. And I do the same thing at the end. Um, so they don't feel that tension of oh, this is recorded and someone else is going to see it. Um, but reaching out and, and I just finished a, a little panel thing, um, mainly in flip learning network things. And they ask us to use a pithy quote at the end. And I totally stole from Sean Michael Morris and Jesse Stommel of, of trust your students and practice a pedagogy of care. And, and it's, it's, it's their words. And, but for me, those are really important. And that's what I've been living for the last few months is, is really making that first. Yeah. Well, good for you, man. That's awesome. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I've noticed that even just trying to do a, a self-care is hard. Right. And, and I've been finding myself saying that a lot to people lately, like make sure you take care of yourself. Right. Like, it's it's good that you want to take care of people and it's good that you, and you look at your teaching as a stewardship and then there's a responsibility and I get it because I'm like you, I'm a, I'm a teacher at heart. Right. And, uh, but there, there, there comes a point where if I'm not looking after myself and filling the well of my life, how can I, how can I, how can I help others? And, now you got to be careful about that. And, and um, so Freakonomics, the podcast, which I've been listening to for ages, um, Stephen, Stephen Dubner always, and since this has been happening with COVID, his sign off is now take care of yourself. And if you have the energy or can take care of someone else, like he doesn't that, you know, take care of your family. You don't assume that it's like, take care of yourself first. And I kind of like how he changed the sign off to the end of the podcast with that. I'm going to steal that. It's nice. <laughs> it's, it's important, Tim. And, and sometimes yeah. we're telling people to take care of others, take care of your students, take care of your family and you, you got to take care of yourself too. Yeah. You know, I'm even, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm afraid if that's the right word to use that we don't say that enough, that it's it, like, it's almost expected that we're going to put in extra hours to make sure that this all works. And it's almost, it's not a badge of honor. Like, it's just like, we just do it. Right. And we're not doing it for accolades. We're not doing it. And there's, there's a million of us out there doing it behind the scenes and, and all that. Focusing stuff, right? on helping others first. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Like I even, I, I don't know if you follow Arlie Crothers mm, on Twitter, yes, right? Yes, and she's kind of doing the same thing that you're doing, right? Like she's been, she's been journaling her way through COVID with her students and she shares a little bit here and there. And I'm just like, oh yeah, like that totally, totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Wow. So, okay. Um, we're here three months in, getting close to summer, just submitted marks. Is there anything from your perspective, is there anything positive that uh, we can look forward to because of this uh, pancake? Um, I think uh, I, I do truly hope that a lot of us that were in coast mode as educators and doing the things we've been doing just because we've always been doing that way and not looking at our practice critically, mm -hmm. um, we've been forced to. And, and so lots of people said this. I mean, we're being forced to look, take a critical lens and, and critical look at our pedagogy and how we're going to change it, which is a good thing. The trick is what do we do with that knowledge? Um, for myself, I have a couple months now. I'm going to probably start teaching in August. I, I was requested to teach in the summer. <laughs> I said, no, I need a break. Um, please, I, I will help you if it's really emergency, but I really would like to take a break. And I'm, I might be teaching one. but. Um, now's the time to really think about 
how can we get ready for whatever's going to be there in August, whether we're in person, whether we're online, whether we're in a mixture of those in some kind of hybrid mode um, to think about what we're doing. So, I mean, I just literally finished this morning. Um, But I actually relish the summer, and that's why I don't like teaching summer classes to do that that reflective process and prep for August. Um, Traditionally, if you look at my blog, I tend to always do that. January semester is my pivot semester where I do something weird and crazy and new, but um, I need to think about how to do more asynchronous work and not focus uh, so much on, I mean, I, I do, um, but shout out to Laura Gibbs um, and her online course lady on Twitter and, and really, you know, hammering on us to, to say, look, we really need to focus more on the asynchronous work and not so much asynchronous. Um, for myself, and then also I'm um, sharing with colleagues that I share with about how to pivot our practice in that way. So we need to think about how we're going to change. And I think it's going to be changing in the long run. And there's other things, like I had some students say, and I'm um, translating from Spanish, I was like, so yeah, I've gotten to know my parents a lot more, and I kind of like them. <laughs> <laughs> I just laughed when I read that. It was so awesome. Uh, yeah. But a lot of us, because even if we're living at home and studying, or they are, um, they don't see each other so often because it's like, you know, I'm going to classes or I'm going to teach classes and then I come home and then sometimes my wife and I are like, it's a high five as we're crossing paths. It's um, so a lot more of us are spending more time together and hopefully for a lot of us, um, that's a good thing that we're realizing what we missing in the day-to-day rush and putting off. And then all of a sudden your daughter's 18, right? (laughs) It's like, whoops, where did that whole, fatherhood go by. So yeah, you know, that's, that's important a, too. That's a really good point. Cause I don't know if you've watched any of the news from the States and I don't watch a ton. Right. So, cause I just, it makes me mad or depressed and I don't want to go down either one of those roads. Um, but when, but when New York was getting slammed, right. And, and uh, it was about a month and a half in or two months in governor gets on the, on the, on the TV and they're like, so, and they asked him like, so how you doing? Like just how you doing? nothing else, just how you doing. And it's almost like he started breaking down. Like he's yeah. like, yeah, you know, I remember that one. Yeah. Like I, I got two older kids, right. Mm-hmm. And they, they'd be in university and it would yep. be just like you expect. We would be, we'd be passing each other. Hey, how you doing? How's life? Yep. Good. Do you need anything? Do you need the money? Nope. I'm good. Now they're actually having conversations. Right. It's kind of like the Jerry Seinfeld uh, skit in one of the episodes where he picked on the, how you doing? Uh, where nobody really wants to hear the answer to that. It's just a greeting. And it's, if you say, yeah, actually my mom's sick and no, I don't want to hear that. How are you doing? It's just, how, how are you? It's brushing by, but now we can have deeper conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a real positive thing too. And yeah. Awesome. So what were you most surprised about in, in how higher ed has adapted or trying to adapt? Oh, I don't know, Tim. Um, I think in some ways, and this is, this is going off what we talked about, is we're actually communicating more sometimes. Um, for example, this EduCoffee thing I, I run. Um, so I have a colleague that arrived a year or so ago at our campus. He's from Iran. He had been two years in our main campus before. And so his office is like right across the hall from me. 
right? And our interactions are pretty low. In fact, I'm teaching online most of the last semester. So often my door would be closed with a sign on the door with a, an image created by Alan Levine, which is Creative Commons, a microphone saying, don't knock, please. I'm recording uh, in Spanish and English. And so we didn't talk that much. I mean, once in a while, but he's on these coffee sessions often. And, and I think part of it is because he lives alone, you know, lives alone with his cat. And I think a lot of my colleagues during this COVID-19 are alone and they need social contact. And that's part of probably why I run these sessions. Um, so I think uh, we're talking more and, and we're communicating more. And I, I think that has changed a bit of dynamics. And I hope that goes forward more. Uh, we use Workplace, which is kind of like Facebook for a company. Um, and in the past, because I'm like loud on social media, it was like half the posts were mine. Um, but I think a lot of uh, my colleagues have grokked this idea that it's a communication tool for sharing our practice and asking questions about our practice. And so it's been a really useful tool. Um, and I would love to see the data, but I bet the use of that tool has just exploded after over the last three months compared to the previous two or three years that we've had this installed for our faculty. So what have you changed your mind on in this new landscape? About retiring, maybe? No. Um, <laughs> what have I changed my mind on? Um, I think because I've been talking more with my students than before, um, I, think, I think maybe my, my, my mind about teaching using tools and online, whether it's synchronous or synchronous, um, I think a lot of my students have realized as well is that we don't need that face-to-face -face interaction whether it's over Zoom like we are now or whether it's in the classroom. We don't need it all the time. Maybe we can do less of it and do more asynchronous work, mostly because of the flexibility it affords, right? Um, the, the scheduling of I got to be at the campus and I got to get there, grab something to eat and then get into my classroom. And then that whole thing becomes much more flexible if we have less hours of class time. So I, I would like to think about how we can think outside the box and change that. Um, a lot of my time is spent one-on-one -on -one my, my students. If I, I schedule them. I ask them to meet me three times a semester for at least 15 minutes, every one of my students. And for me, that's a really important part of my practice is that one-to-one -one time. Um, and I, I think I want to push more on that part as my 15 year old walk through the door and yeah, we cool. get the door sound. That's all good. <laughs> it's part of it. <laughs> it's all part of it. The, the podcast episode I did with Jesse Stommel, I was interrupted by all three of my children and Jesse made me promise to keep that in the episode. Please Ken. <laughs> How was it interviewing Jesse? It was great. Yeah. I have to interview Jesse. Jesse was, um, it was wonderful. I mentioned this today that it's when I learned I was going to be teaching online in October. I selfishly, I, okay, I'm going to interview Jesse. I'm going to interview Sean Michael Morris. I'm going to interview Chris Gilliard. Um, and who else was I interviewing specifically about learning about online teaching? I was like, I need to pick all of your brains. So no, I, I love Jesse's work. I love all of their work. So um, it was a great conversation. Um, obviously, uh, Hazel came up a lot and, and my kids came up a lot. No, it was a good conversation that I had with Jesse. I really, I really love that talk. He's on my list. I've, yeah. I've yet to reach out to him because I'm 
I'm sorry to talk a little bit, but uh, don't anyway. be, don't be. Jesse's really accommodating and a, and a wonderful person. He will, he will give. He's a giving person. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. And uh, so, Jesse, if you're listening, which I don't think you are, if you're listening, <laughs> well, I'll be, I'll be sending a. Uh, I'll be sending out a tweet here. Soon. That's right. That's right. He does follow me, so I can DM him, which is yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. That's good. Okay. Uh, so where, where can we as educators lean in? Like we've kind of been talking a bit about a pedagogy of care and, and maybe a different perspective on how we deliver and, and toning down the face-to-face stuff. But what do you think are some practical things as facilitators, educators that we can do to lean into this? Um, I think, um, I mean, Doing a lot more active learning and making our students active as opposed to receiving content, I think is really important. I think we really, really need to rethink how we're doing any kind of evaluation. Um, I, I did a webinar for a bunch of people the other day. And, and of course, the question is, how do I do that exam that I always do online? And, I, and the answer you is, don't. Well, don't. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is don't. So yeah. let's rethink how we... Um, how we're evaluating the learning of our students um, and thinking outside of the box about that. I think that's the most important thing that we need to say lean on um, when we're going forward is how are we evaluating our students? And there's a lot of smart people that are doing this and, and look at what they're doing. Don't you think that's the hardest part of all of this though, is, is le- leaning into that assessment oh, yeah. piece? Uh, yeah. The assessment's so hard and, and, it's funny because, see, so, you know, it's final exam time and his teacher's got a pile of things they got to mark. And it's like, oh, God, I got a mark exam or I got a grade <laughs> essays or whatever. Like, yeah, actually, this is a favorite time of year I have because my end of the semester thing are these reflection pieces by my student, which are just wonderful. Some of them are, you know, nice little essays or poems or weird stuff. Um, but I have students and it's it's draining because some of them will record a 35 minute video of reflection pieces. So multiply that times a hundred. But, but I love it. And, and it gives me a mirror into my own practice, what they think is important, what they think is important. Um, So I love that part of my end of the semester. I I feel energized at the end. Um, We'll see what happens when the teaching evaluations come out. It's a different story for another time. But, um, I think it's, um, yeah, it, looking at the, um, the assessment is big. Um, I, would, I would talk to faculty. We just did a massive pivot of our system a year ago. And uh, one thing that was hard because instead of all 16-week classes, some of them are like five or 10. And we were not used to designing for that small chunk. And, and teachers were like, oh, I'm drowning in stuff I need to grade. And I, well, you did this to yourself, right? Stop assigning so much stuff that you have to grade if you don't want to be grading so much stuff. Besides grading's for meat, not for students, but that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a hard discussion to have even with the trades uh, faculty mm-hmm. that I know because it's, it's just so baked into what we do. Right. And, mm-hmm. and some of it's it, the norm. You know, some of it I get in the sense of, okay, so when it comes to the safety and, and mm-hmm. the safe practical applications that we do out in the field, I mean, we got to be able to prove that we can do it. And we got to be able to prove that we can do it on a piece of equipment that's safe and, and controlled. I, I get that. But 
then you, then how you do bring we do it in a better way. How do we do it in a better way? Right. And, and even the third party certifications that come in, like we have gas certifications, mm-hmm. we have red seal certifications and they have nothing to do with, you know, our institutions or, or even us as educators. We, we, and so that for the longest time, the mantra is don't teach to the exam. And right. yet, in, but of in, course we are, because we're being evaluated well, based on the results practice, of our students. You're like, exam. well, I'm going to kind of be teaching to the of exam we are. a bit, because because then it gets into this business aspect of, well, how many students did you have passed last yes. year? How many did you pump through? Yeah, exactly. Not just pump through, but and, how many and, passed? And really, I mean, in trades, I would I would think, you know, I, I studied to be a chef. I didn't finish, but um, you know, I should be evaluated based on what I'm actually doing in the kitchen and someone should be watching me and seeing what I'm doing and my knife skills and my, my cleanliness skills and, and keeping my walking cooler clean and everything else that was involved when I was tr- studying. Um, but I can't do that on an exam. Exam's not going to prove that I actually do that. I need to be viewed. I need to be evaluated. And yes, this is more one-on-one time and it's expensive in terms of time, but that's actually the right way. And, and we can't pump a hundred th- students through it that way, but well, then maybe we need to think about how we're funding education in, in all levels and, and how much money we need to spend on the education as opposed to other expenses in our government budgets. But we won't go down that path right now. <laughs> well, that's okay. You want to go down there? That's totally fine. But uh, yeah, I know it's, it's one of those interesting dilemmas that I even wrestle with, right? Because it's like, I want to change. And I have been making some changes in how I teach, what I teach, how I deliver it, what how the students interact with it. Like I teach on the school of business side too. So it's not just all trades. And uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about theories and models and all this other stuff. And it's like, okay, let's get down to the practical piece here. And how are you going to employ this in, in your current context? And so I've, I've just driven away and thrown away all the multiple choice exams. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's, it's created a lot more marking for me, but yeah, like but you it's said, much deeper. It's it's deeper. And it, it's actually, I think, a better reflection of their learning because because I, I encourage them to give it to me in their own words, right? And I have 50%, if not more, of my class are not they're not Canadian kids, right? They're they're international students where English is a second, sometimes third language. Correct. Right. And it's like, yeah, I, and I have to constantly remind them, listen, I'm not, I'm not marking your grammar. I, Don't worry listen, about it. I'm, I, I'm not your English professor, right? That Worry about that in another, like in business communications, worry about that there, right? But here, I just want to know what you think. Yeah. And Tell even me your it, opinion. Exactly. It takes like 10 weeks for them to warm yeah. up to that. And Well, you have to build it. You have to gain their trust, Tim. It's because we can say that, but until they see that reflected in our practice that we're not going to do take them points off or whatever and everything else. In my experience, it takes me about eight, nine weeks to build up that trust level with my students about while well, we're doing ungrading and it's this weird stuff or whatever I'm doing with them that year. It sometimes uh, the students are coming to me the second class they take with me. That, yeah, now I get it. <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, when we're doing something different, it, the students are used to a certain way of taking classes and getting their points and playing school. So when are you we doing, mix it up on them. Are you doing ungrading? I've done it in the past. Yeah. How did that work out? Um, and really good. I actually had some students fail themselves. So it's, there's some interesting experiments. I don't have much written about it, um, but I talked about it a lot in, in some workshops I've given, but uh, a few years ago um, I did it. I think if, if you went to my blog and searched for ungrading, there'd be a couple of things there talking about my experiences with it. 
What did your institution think? Nobody said anything. I, I'm this crazy Canadian that can do what he wants. And um, no, um, there was some pushback. There's, there's one of the most popular blogs that gets hit. I, I'm guessing it's mostly robots, but I have this blog post called uh, Teaching Evaluations, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, and there's some interesting quotes from students there about, no, he didn't teach us anything. And, um, and you can just do nothing and pass. And, and then I've actually had contact with those students later on about how this has shifted their focus of what they think about in their learning practice. So, and, and always I've had a long view on my classroom. I, I'm, I'm not so focused on what they're learning inside the content of my class, but how it's, how it's helping them become better learners farther down and better people. I try to employ that in my own practice and say to them, I don't, I don't, and this is not ungrading, but I try to convince them that I don't care what their mark is. What I right. care about is that they work hard. What I, what I care about is that they learn stuff that's applicable outside the class and that, and that textbook, right? I mean, we can, I, I can rant about that, but I, I <laughs> the, the textbook is really a reference tool, right? Like once we're done the class, it doesn't mean you burn the book in a, in a garbage can, like put it on your shelf, use it, use it. Right. But um, yeah, I've, I've, I've flirted with the idea of ungrading, but it's, it's hard enough convincing people in, in the, in the higher places. It's hard to convince some of the students. And and that's the big thing I found that was surprising. Um, And anything is convincing the students that this is, this is the thing to let go. Um, And, and, but it's been liberating because I've had wonderful work done by my students and because you've removed that bar, they're not asking you, is it close enough to the bar to get the grade I want for this assignment? As soon as I've removed that bar, they've done some amazing work that might not have happened because they went to the bar and then they, you know, finished. Yeah. Did you have any students like just not really know what they were doing in your course, like through the whole thing and not really understand the process or... Um, is at the first times. Yeah. But that's where I learned that you need to be much more, um, aggressive, assertive and, and cutting them off early in the process of that. And so that's part of why I set up these one-on-one sessions and discussion sessions, uh, that they had to visit me during the semester and say how they're doing. It was part of that process when I was doing on grading. Um, there's all sorts of side benefits to that where my students gain a much better trust in me. Some of them would come with me with their other problems in life and their degree program choices and stuff. Um, but I think that practice really instilled a, a pedagogy of trust with my students, which has become really important for me going forward. But that probably came out of the ungrading where I, I decided I needed to do that to have more personal contact with them about what their individual progress is on their path. So logistically, like I, I got a, I got a bunch of stuff swimming in my head, but I don't want to take too much more of your time. But like even logistically, when you're reporting marks to your institution, like oh, I had to put a number on it. I, yeah. So the first time I did this, uh, and even the partial exams, we had two partial exams and a final exam. The exam was okay. These are the topics we've looked at over the last five weeks. Um, explain them to me, and then uh, that was the questions, and just totally open ended. Uh, and then uh, and the last question was, what is your grade on a scale of one to a hundred for this grading period? Uh-huh. And that was all I put. And I freaked that crap out of them. They just didn't, they, <laughs> they didn't know how to do it. Some people were like, just so, um, uh, not sure of themselves that they 
lowered, they, they gave them a, oh, a really crappy score and I told them that they needed to raise it up. Others obviously, oh, 100% for sure. And we had these conversations. But in generally, what they put is what I reported. Um, and then so uh, it, we, we had a discussion after that first event. Um, and then they really wanted more guidance and structure. And so we, we invented a rubric between uh, ourselves in class and decided that's the rubric I would use in the second one and the third one. Um, I resist rubrics, um, but I was okay doing it with them because they wanted a bit more um, guidance on how they could decide what their grade should be. But yeah, it was fun. They freaked out that first time. Totally. So do you resist rubrics because it pigeonholes people? Yeah. Yeah, same thing as put that that bar that's limiting them is is you get to that level and that's enough and it's done, and plus often it, it tells you exactly what you're supposed to do, it, it, right? And so I think it, it yeah pigeonholes them and I think it creates an artificial barrier of good enough. Hey, we're coming up to time. It's been it's flown by. It's almost been uh, fifty eight minutes now. So nice. <laughs> That's good. I wish we could keep we can, going. We can ramble like, like lots, Tim. We can always follow up again. <laughs> um, I'd love to. You didn't get to the hockey part. I've been playing hockey online in NHL 20. <laughs> um, my students always ask me what video games I play. And I say, I really, I don't have a lot of time to play video games. But when I do, I just like to uh, pretend I'm a hockey player because I never was. Um, and uh, I'm this uh, old gamer who we have a gaming group called Alea Yakta Est. It's mainly old guys like me and we have a discord group and we never actually play the games. We're usually just chatting about life and everything else. And oh yeah, maybe I'll play a video game once in a while. Oh yeah. Or yeah. the people who always buy steam games on sale. Cause maybe someday we'll play them, but we oh, never do. Okay. Yeah. I remember steam games. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I don't play very much at all. Either. Don't go that way anymore. <laughs> but thank you so much, Tim. This has been really gracious. Um, in extending this invitation. I, I thank you. Hopefully the audio is all good and um, keep doing this. Um, I found, I love the podcasting thing. I've been not doing it very often lately because um, it helps me reflect on my own practice. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. What's your favorite band? What do you like to listen to when you just, when you just want to do just listen to music? What do you want to listen to? So my favorite band has always been Rush. Um, so okay. that's, that's my answer. Neil Pert uh, passing must have been hard on yep, The doctor's gone. Yep. Or the yeah, professor. It took, me a, it took me a couple, three days to work through that. It, it took a while to just absorb. And I never saw them live. I was supposed to go to the Power Windows tour back in the 80s, and I right. didn't. And I'm kicking myself for not doing their 40th anniversary one. But yeah. but uh, that's one of the bands I didn't make it to. Yeah, they're one, of, they're one of the bands that I really love listening to that I've never seen live. Same mm-hmm. I just never went and saw them. But, um, yeah, cool. All right. Well, we'll find something that we can uh, intro and outro with on uh, from that 40 plus years of, of music industry. Shouldn't Wonderful. Be too hard to, shouldn't be too hard to nail down. Thanks again for taking the time. All right. Take awesome. care, Tim. And uh, take care of someone if you can. Right, thank you.
gets high on you and the space he invades he gets by 